All right, so we're going to be walking through this passage in James, but I'll start with a question, and then we'll figure out a little bit of context for where we are right now in James. The question is, what is wisdom? So what really is wisdom? Is it knowing which account to put your retirement funds in? Is it knowing how to raise kids? Is it being super spiritual? Is it lots of intelligence? Is it knowledge? What what really is it? Um, and James answers this question for us, so we'll walk through a bit there, but let me start with some context. First of all, some external context for the book of James, and then we'll deal some, with some internal context for the book of James. Um, first of all, you probably already know a lot of this, but I'll, I'll go over it pretty quickly. Um, James was the brother of Jesus, was not a believer until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, he became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, but this letter is not to the believers in Jerusalem. This letter is to the dispersion, the group of Christians that went out from Jerusalem in a lot of ways were living out the Great Commission. Uh, this is one of the earliest known books that we have in the New Testament, and that's significant because James sees a lot of problems or potential issues in this group of Christians that is living outside somewhere, that is fulfilling the Great Commission outside of Jerusalem. So he goes through a number of things that he feels like may be an issue or could come up in the future. So that's external stuff. Internal stuff, uh, James develops a number of themes throughout the book. So you've been through one through three so far, right? For the most part, we're finishing up three tonight, okay? So he goes through a number of themes here. He talks about suffering, trials, faith and works. He talks about double-mindedness, um, partiality, the rich and poor, etc. And then we have this little section. And I'm going to park here just for a second because I want to mention kind of where this passage is in the book. Andy's mentioned this a couple of times, um, but anytime you see something more than once in either a passage or in this case a book, then the author is wanting us to take notice. This is becoming very important to the author. So James has developed all these themes through chapters one through three, but he actually reiterates those same themes in chapters four and five. And in fact, he reiterates the exact same themes in this short passage that we're going to look at tonight. Um, so he goes through all of these themes at least three times. Um, he's fairly focused on these, except that in this passage, unlike the first half and the second half, in this passage, he reiterates them positively. So he doesn't talk about as much of the dangers of these thematically. He talks about the solutions to a lot of the problems that he's seeing or the potential problems for the dispersion and the church. So what we're looking at here is, at least in the eyes of James, the writer, we're looking at the key to the book. We're looking at the key to the argument that he's trying to make. Um, he has all these themes, and then he has this section, then he has the exact same themes again. So James is wanting us to look at this as the key to what he's wanting to talk about to the church. He's presented problems, now he's presenting a solution, and then he presents kind of a mix of problems and solutions in the last two chapters as well. Um, <clears throat> In the Vietnam War, we saw for the first time troops were being moved primarily by helicopter, right? Before that, we didn't move troops by helicopter quite as much. Uh, they'd fly in with a plane or an aircraft carrier, etc. But because of the terrain and the type of warfare in Vietnam, helicopters started to being used. Um, one, of the, one of the main icons, the, the major helicopter of the time was the UH-1 Huey. Anybody know that? Fantastic. So, UH-1 Huey, what's that? The uh, this applies to the Chinook as well. So, um, most of us are probably 
familiar with at least the way the helicopter looks. Most of us probably don't know how they're built. So just really quickly, um, in the back of the bubble bit, there's an engine, there's a shaft, it goes up, and on top of the shaft are the rotors. On the very top of that rotor is a nut that holds the rotors to the shaft. Right? A friend of mine who's an, air, um, uh, an airplane maintenance I don't know what his degree actually is. That was his degree. I don't know what he calls it. Um, told me about this. That nut is called the Jesus nut. Because if that nut fails, then all you have left is Jesus. All you got left is to pray, right? This passage in James is our Jesus nut. This is the one that holds everything together. It's the one that holds all of our themes together. It's the one that holds all of our arguments together. Um, so if James thinks this is our Jesus nut, we should probably learn a little bit more about it. If you don't mind, I know Ryan already prayed. I'd like to pray again because I'm kind of nervous, um, and I want to make sure that what I'm teaching is, is right. So pray with me if you would. Father, tonight we're learning about wisdom. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom as I teach this. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're trying to say to us um, I know that this passage is for me, probably more than anyone else, so I appreciate the opportunity to study this, to learn about this, um, and ultimately to share what I've learned about this. Be with us tonight, and you name I pray. Amen. All right, so what is wisdom? Let's talk about our passage first. Let's read the passage, and then we'll get into our points. Uh, James 3, 13 through 18 is what we're studying. So this is 13 through 16. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But... The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemaker, peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So our first verse that we're going to look at is number 13. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. So our first point here is wisdom is recognizable. Right? James talks, first of all, about a test. If you think you are wise, then prove it. Um, and he has two sections to prove it, by living an honorable life, and then another section by doing humility. So let's talk about each one. We'll start with, if you're wise and understand God's ways, uh, the word here that is translated wise is sophos or sophia, and it simply means knowledge or knowing the right thing to do. But James doesn't leave it there. He then says, if you're wise and understand God's ways. This is a slightly different word. Um, this word is epistemon. Um, if anybody's ever heard the term epistemology, which is the study of knowledge or the knowledge of knowledge, that's where this comes from. This implication is not just that you know something and then you know it again. It's that you know something. If you're wise, you know the right thing to do. And epistemon implicates that you understand it by having experienced it, by having done it. So to reread it, um, if you're an expert in knowing what is right 
and you have done it consistently, so it's starting to become natural, then prove it. Okay? So we know here that James is starting to talk about wisdom and what he thinks that wisdom is, and we'll get into that in just a second. But first of all, test one and two, test one is prove it by good works. This reiterates the same theme that James talked about earlier. Faith without works is dead. In the exact same way, wisdom without works is dead. James is tying what you do to what you know and suggesting that the two are not separable. The two are one of the same. But not only is it okay to prove it by living an honorable life, a good life, to show it in other translations, it says to show by your good deeds. It's not just that. But if all that's true, when you're doing good works, do so in the humility that comes from wisdom. And the word here um, indicates not only a humility, in some translations it's translated meekness. It's translated meekness, for instance, in the Beatitudes. It's the same word. Um, But in this case, the ability to humble yourself, to take direction from something or someone else. James doesn't make it explicit here to whom you are submitting We can implicate that, but he becomes a little bit more explicit later on. So all of this to say, James is suggesting this is wisdom. It's knowing the right thing and experiencing it to the point that you're becoming good at it. So you're an expert, not only because you know it, but you can do it. If so, then prove it by good deeds and by doing so in humility. One of the problems we have here is that until this point, most places in the Bible, so this would be the Old Testament since this is one of the newest books or one of the first books in the New Testament. Most places in the Bible, I'm thinking about Proverbs specifically, don't translate wisdom in terms of action. Almost everywhere, in fact, the word um, dahath is the Hebrew word that is translated exactly the same as Sophia in Greek. And that word in Proverbs is found at least 39 times, right? And that word, dahath, the Hebrew word, is translated knowledge. So it's not knowledge in action, it's just knowledge. So here, James is assuming that there's a shift, and I think that shift is kind of important, so let's park here just for a second. So if wisdom isn't just about knowledge, if it's not just about the mind and the heart, but James is suggesting that it's also part of action, is this the only place we find it? Are there other places in the Bible that suggest that the other writers of the New Testament agree with James. And the, the truth is, yes, um, one reference, there's a, there's a reference that is both repeated in Matthew and Luke and elsewhere in the New Testament, but I'll read this one just from Matthew. Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. In the Old Testament, the understanding of wisdom was knowledge. We, we see the exact same thing, say, in the story of Joseph. So Joseph was called wise and considered wise by Pharaoh and others. But his wisdom was in the knowledge of how to interpret the dream, as well as the more practical knowledge of how to store up grain for the coming years of famine. But he was called wise exclusively because of what he knew to do, not because of what he had done. His wisdom wasn't attributed to him after he had acted or behaved in a certain way. It was attributed to him as soon as Pharaoh knew that he knew something. So there's a, there's a sharp shift in the New Testament. Um, and Christ himself is 
where this quote comes from, Christ himself is saying that wisdom is proved right by its results. It is proved right by those who live out its results. And James is reiterating this. <clears throat> so, in this case, wisdom is not just about actions, and it's not just about knowledge, but James is suggesting the two are inseparable. And frankly, for the first time for these Hebrew li- um, listeners, unless they had been a part of Jesus' early ministry. So he, he's suggesting a, a kind of a major shift. Um, in 1519, there was a conquistador named Cortez, and some of you have probably heard this story. He was a Spanish conquistador, and he landed on the shores of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And he had an exhibition planned. He was um, you know, headed off to conquer some people. In fact, anecdotally, he destroyed the Aztec Empire. Um, but there have been plenty of other conquistadors and explorers and expeditions to various parts of the New World. He wasn't new. He wasn't doing something that nobody else had done. But Cortez was slightly different. When he landed on the shores of the Yucatan Peninsula, after all of his men got off, he did something really different. He destroyed all of his ships. He had 11 ships with him. He had a number of horses, a number of men, cannons. As soon as they all got offloaded, he destroyed them. And I'll bet that not a single one of his men questions his intentions. None of them wondered, I wonder if he's really serious about this expedition. I wonder if he actually means something by heading off into the inland. Cortez proved what he believed by what he did. And people could see that he meant what he believed because of what he did. I think the same thing applies here. James is arguing that just because everybody else believed that they meant something, they were committed to a cause, Cortez proved it. And that is what makes wisdom, not only that we know it, but that we do it. Um, (laughs) So in my notes, I have (laughs) my sentences. Ask yourself, do you suck? And um, I think this is an apt question for all of us. I mean, do I, do you, can people see wisdom in my life? Can people see wisdom in your life? If we look around at the church, can we see wisdom because of the actions that people are are doing, because of the humility in which they do it? Can someone say of you that you are a wise person or you know wisdom and you do wisdom and you do so humbly? The question is, can we say that about our church in general? Are we wise with what we do with, with our people, our resources, our money, our time? Um, I think it's a valuable question. If you, you should be able to ask the people around you, and they should be able to tell you, yeah, I see wisdom in your life, by these tests, that you do good works out of wisdom and that you do so humbly. <clears throat> so, this next section, let's read this, and then we'll talk about our point. James 3, 14 through 16 But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's a fun one. We'll get there. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. All right. So, false wisdom destroys relationships. I know it's a funny title. We'll, we'll get into why. Um, 
This is also broken up into two parts. So the first bit is, if you have this, don't do this. And the second part is, because this is what that kind of wisdom looks like. So let's talk about each one real quick. Um, first thing to think about is, wisdom is connected to purpose or to kingdoms. Right? Keep that in mind as we run through this. Um, if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, he's talking about motives here. He's not talking about what you do. He's talking about why you do it. He's talking about how you feel. He's talking about the decisions that you make based on the motives that you have inside you. He's saying, if this is true, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. So it's pretty bad if you have this. It gets worse if you're proud of it. Right? Um, and then the second part is talking about what all of this wisdom does. So let's talk about this for a second. I'm going to go through three of the words, the earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. So it's reiterating the first point. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. All right, so earthly. Um, so again, all of this is in Greek, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce all of these. Some of them I knew and the ones I didn't know. Um, earthly. First thing is, this is not about maybe the, the super spiritual kind of earthly that we think of. This isn't you know, man's sin nature or the fallenness uh, of man. This is actually pretty simple. This is an increasing list, and he begins with earthly. And this earthly is just dirt. It's the stuff we walk on. It's ground level, it's the things outside, it's what we walk on, it's what everybody else walks on, and it's the crust on this globe that we call earth, right? So he's saying that such things are expected, they're, they're around you, right? There's, there's nothing new here, this isn't new for you, it's not new for this group of people over here, this isn't a special kind of sin, it's, it's everywhere, right? But then he steps it up just a little bit and says they are also unspiritual, Right, the word here is psychikos, um, and most of you probably recognize that. It's where we get psychology from, psychiatry from, psyche from. But the relationship here is actually to breath. So it's to everything that breathes. So it's, again, it's not just referring to man. We talked about the earth, so everything that kind of walks around. This is sort of normal for the stuff around you, for where you are. And the second one, unspiritual, is everything that breathes. So... You know, if we're going to translate this into a colloquialism, it'd be, this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. This is normal. This is what you can expect animals to do. This is instinctual. This is me building my kingdom because I can. You know, this is the lion eating the cheetah because I'm hungry, not because there's any emotional content to it. This is, this is instinctual. This is normal. This is what animals can be expected to do, right? <laughs> so far, it's not an incredibly flattering picture. Uh, but the last one is pretty rough demonic. Now, this word does not mean that you are possessed. What it means is it looks just like a devil. It looks just like the behavior of a demon. So what does that mean? And how in the world did James jump from, well, if you're envious, you're demonic? Right? How, how does that transition work for James? So, this goes back to the original sin of Adam in the garden. It's the first time we see the devil entering, so we're going to 
harp on this for a minute. It's the first time we see demonic influence entering the entire history of man. It's the first recorded history of the devil. Now, Satan, sorry, Adam's sin was one of envy and selfish ambition. He wanted to build his kingdom no matter what God said he could do. He chose something specifically because he wanted to get ahead because of it, right? Satan's part in this, the devil's part in this, was specifically to destroy relationships. In fact, he did a great job. He destroyed Adam and Eve's relationship with God, and he destroyed Adam and Eve's relationship with each other, and he destroyed Adam and Eve's relationship with themselves. So after the fall, not only were they hidden from God, not only did they start blaming each other immediately, and they also felt shame for the first time. So they not only looked at other things as separate from them, they also looked at themselves as separate from their own relationship. They saw guilt and shame within themselves, not just blame with the other person and fear with God, right? Did a wonderful job of destroying relationships there. And in fact, in that passage, um, when God is talking to the serpent, he says that, when he tells him to scurry away without legs, he says, you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. And Satan's work for the cross was intended to be the exact same thing. Not only did he destroy our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with ourselves, but he attempted to destroy God's relationship with us, the redemptive action on the cross. He was attempting to end that, to block that, so that in that case, he would have destroyed all of the available relationships that we have, not only with us and ourselves, but with God. That would have been it. So the relationships would have all been tainted, all been destroyed. Um, Think of it this way. God is triune. So he is Father, he's Son, and he's Holy Spirit. He exists in perfect relationship with himself. He is the epitome, the perfection of relationship. And we are made in his image. So the first thing that we are made in, in his image, is that we are made for perfect relationship. We are made for relationship with God. We are made for relationship with each other. And Satan's work in the garden to destroy that was significant because it wasn't just, now I fight a little bit, but it was entirely to mock the image of God. It was to strike at the very heart of what God had created us to be in his image and to mock that image. So everything that James has talked about, and we're going to step out of our passage just for a little bit, everything James has talked about so far in one through three Um, We've talked about envy, selfish ambition, partiality, uh, the way people treat each other, um, the dangers of the tongue, um, the way that mercy is to take care of specifically in James, widows and orphans. All of it has to do with how we're supposed to interact with one another. James is talking about all of that in negative. Please don't do any of these things. Because in doing so, we are destroying the image of God. And to get back to this, We are just helping the devil in his work. All we are doing when we hurt each other, when we hurt the relationships around us, when we destroy someone else's relationship or attempt to or even unwittingly do so, hurt someone else's relationship with God, we are mocking the image of God. And James is saying that this is the same work the devil is a part of. In fact, all of his work can be boiled down to exclusively that. He is destroying relationships. I mean, the Bible says he's like a destroyer roaming around seeking whom he may devour. 
and he's devouring a lot of relationships. So, the question here is, from the first of this point, which kingdom do you serve? Are you building your kingdom? Are you building God's kingdom? And the implication is almost harder. Are you building God's kingdom? Or are you working with the devil to build what he thinks is his earthly kingdom? Because your kingdom doesn't matter unless it's a part of his kingdom. And the devil's entire job is to seek and destroy relationships with ourselves, with each other, with God. So where are you? And here's a second question, not just what kingdom are you serving, but our second question, what do your relationships look like? So every time James gives us a challenge, he gives us a test. And this is a test. Do your relationships appear to show that you are building the kingdom of God? Are they good relationships? Or are you at odds with the people around you? Do you spread discord? When somebody makes a comment, do you make another comment? And does that make things worse, not only with your relationship with them, but their relationship maybe with themselves or with other people? What do their relationships look like? And just to extrapolate this for fun, what do our relationships look like here at Crosspoint? So if you walk into Crosspoint with our body of believers, what would people say about our relationships? Personally, and this is a struggle of mine, um, I tend to come late and leave early. Not because I don't like people, but because I have a certain level of, of social uncomfortableness. I, I think I'm fairly socially awkward, and I don't really want to let a lot of people in on that. I can do a better job at this, because I know if people come in and see my relationships, they don't see much. It's not that they see them as bad, but they don't see much at all. And James is challenging me specifically, and maybe you generally, um, maybe that's not the way that we're supposed to behave. Maybe our relationships really are more important. We're, we're made in the image of God. Let's, let's act like that's important. And maybe I don't sometimes. <clears throat> okay, so that was the fun one. Yeah. Sorry, that was a little heavy, and I know it, um, but it gets better. It's important to know where we are, where we shouldn't be. Uh, but James brings us a little bit of hope. So our next bit is a little bit of hope. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure and is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the, good, and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So our last point was false wisdom destroys relationships. True wisdom destroys selfishness. <clears throat> so James has given us a list. It's a fairly interesting list. The interesting part about it is he's listed almost everything he's already talked about in his book. This is where we really come down to James telling us, I know I've talked about a lot of bad stuff, and it's really, really hard, but here you can find the solution. Here you can find rest. Here you, you know that not all of this will live with you forever. There is a way out. <clears throat> so let's go through a, a couple of these really quickly and, and kind of figure out maybe what they mean a bit more. Again, remember just our context. James is not talking to anybody, although I think anybody could learn from this. James is talking specifically to the church on how to be the church. 
on how to be unified, on how to behave. When you're out there, when you're, you're fulfilling the Great Commission, that's great, but there are still things to consider. And the biggest thing that James is talking about is you need to consider each other. This is how to behave with one another, okay? So keep that in mind in terms of context. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. So let's talk about our list of words here. Let's go with pure, first of all. Pure here indicates um, perfection. In our context, it indicates that we are not separate from God. So the pure lamb, the pure sacrifice, um, Christ being our pure sacrifice for our sins. This indicates that we are not separate from God. We're not separated from God. There's a covering there. Our next is um, peace-loving. So not only are you not separate from God, which is obviously important, not only is there purity in this wisdom, but you also seek this in other people. And so you are not only being reconciled in your relationship with God, but you're seeking the same reconciliation in one another. Not only reconciliation between two people, but between people and their creator with God. So are you seeking peace there? Gentle at all times. This is also translated as considerate in other translations. So gentle, considerate. You you think about other people. You are willing to consider the problems and the issues that other people may have and adjust certain things accordingly. And willing to yield to others. Again, in other translations, um, this is translated as meekness or humility or humbleness. We're at the same place. You're willing to accept influence from one another. Not only accept influence, but accept direction and potentially correction from one another. So this indicates a lack of pride. You can do something, but if somebody calls you out for it, hopefully they do it in love, but frankly, your reaction is still your reaction. You're only responsible for that, right? So hopefully we can be humble no matter how prideful someone else is trying to be with us. So this, this indicates a right reaction to the people around us. And then the last one. So stop again. We started with something really super spiritual. <laughs> you're pure. You're removed from sin. You're not separate from God. And he kind of walks down the list. Not only are you not separate, but also you consider other people. Not only do you consider other people, but you're also kind of submissive and humble. So, you know, we're working into more practical stuff. And the last list of the practical bits is mercy. So not only are you not separate from God and everything else about one another, but you're willing to actually heal within your scope. You're willing to, if someone needs clothes, give them clothes. You're willing to, if someone needs a home, give them a home. Or if they need medicine, or if they just need love and compassion, or maybe just a few minutes of your time, there is mercy there. We are called to be merciful, not because, well, because Christ himself was mercy, not because it is super spiritual, but because people are hurting and broken, and it's within our remit, it's within our scope of influence to be a part of Christ's healing hands there. So it's mercy, so super spiritual to really, really practical, right? Um, not sinful, perfect. Also, I'm helping you with your clothes. Um, it shows no favoritism, or sorry, it's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. So here we're talking about another agrarian metaphor, talking about reaping things, and we'll uh, reiterate this in a minute. It shows no favoritism. It's always sincere. Um, favoritism is a big thing, theme in the first part and the second part of James. 
and is always sincere. So here it's talking about motivation before it's talking about what we do. And here it's talking about, right, you should do this, but make sure you do it for everybody, whether they're rich or they're poor, they're really ugly, they're really pretty, doesn't really matter, right? We're supposed to be this to everybody, so impartial um, and always sincere, so your motivation should be pure. You're not seeking anything for yourself, i.e. you're not building your kingdom, you're building the kingdom of God. You, you intend to do this out of a love for what you know to be wisdom. In the last bit, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So not only all this stuff, but those of you who do this, he's referring to those that, that accomplish this list as peacemakers, which I think is really interesting. Um, just a side note, if you go back to the Beatitudes, James covers almost all of the Beatitudes in this little section. Right? So if you ever wondered how you can accomplish the Beatitudes, uh, James is telling you. So go back and read that, have a good time with it, and then come back to this section. Is it five, Matthew five? Um, so, not only are you peacemakers, again, we'll go back to Beatitudes, but you will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, which means that you're doing your thing, but around you, not just you, but around you, people are seeing righteousness. They are seeing God. They're seeing their relationships with each other and with God increase and benefit, right? This goes directly back to James's audience. He's talking about the dispersion. Remember, they are accomplishing the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he's saying, well, you're out there. Here's all the stuff you should do. And if you do this, then this whole thing you've been trying to do, this is going to be successful because people will see God, right? <clears throat> so th- there's a problem with all of this because so far, James is suggesting that the answer that we've been looking for is wisdom. And maybe that doesn't jive with what we know about Christianity. Maybe just wisdom isn't quite enough. Knowing the right thing and doing the right thing, maybe that's not everything that we need to know. Could there be something more? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, In the first section of James, so the first few verses, he talks about probably the most famous part of James, that trials lead to testing of faith, which lead to perseverance, which lead to maturity and completion, right? What's interesting is that trials and testing of faith are external, and perseverance and completion are natural, but in between is our response. So in between our testing of faith and our perseverance is how we have to respond, what we have to do, right? So he's inserted wisdom here. Wisdom is how you do that, but that doesn't sound quite right. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, um, Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, God made him, Christ, to be wisdom itself. So James is actually assuming we already know. And here's what I mean by that. Earlier on, I think verse 3.13, James has a really... I think of it as a really awkward transition. Yay, trials, you'll be complete. That's fantastic. So if any of you lacks wisdom, is the next verse. And how in the world did he transition from, you're going to suffer, have a great time, if any of you lack wisdom? And the answer is because James assumes, and right after that he says, if any of you will ask wisdom, ask. And God will give it generously. James assumes 
that we are in relationship with Christ already. He's talking about, he's talking to a group of believers. He knows that we have a relationship with Christ. He's talking to the church. So asking is already a part of that relationship. So he's not assuming that these are the great unwashed. He's assuming these are people that already believe. And remember, he didn't believe until after the resurrection. So Christ is the power of God. And James is almost assuming that we already know that. God made him, Christ, to be wisdom itself. Um, And this relates back to the parable that Jesus talks about. um, I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? So if all this is true, so if we kind of know what wisdom is, recap a little bit, we know what wisdom is, which is knowing the right thing and doing the right thing, and people should be able to see it by our good deeds, and this is the section where we know what those good deeds are, right, in humility. So this is the final test. This is the completion of verse 13. These are the good deeds he's looking for. If we know what wisdom is and we know how to test for it, how do we get it, right? And if we know that Christ is wisdom itself, then what's our next step? So our next step is a wonderful alliteration. It is ask and abide. He's already told us to ask the first few verses of James, saying, if any of you lacks this, do this. Then he talks about it a little bit more in our section, right? So we are to ask, and God will give it generously. But if that wisdom is Christ, we are to ask Christ and then abide in him, to live with him and through him. So to answer our very first question, what really is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing what is right, understanding Wisdom by having done the right thing enough that it's becoming natural. And all of this flows simply and genuinely from a relationship with Christ. So James has given us the key to his entire book, and the key to everything is Christ, which makes a lot more sense for what we were expecting, but wisdom is living in and abiding through Christ, asking for Christ to teach us the right thing and then abiding through that relationship. I'm a teacher, so I sure like interaction. Do you have any questions? Any, any thoughts that maybe anybody else could appreciate or, or nosh on for a bit? It is. It is. There you go, completion. Okay, so what I'd like to do now, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray for us. I think that um, this is an important passage. It's the crux of what James wanted to teach us, and it all points back to Christ, but there are some things, there are some harder things in here, how to test whether or not people see wisdom in us, how to decide whether or not we're building a kingdom other than God's, and then how to know how to recognize these good deeds through this list. So, Again, reiteration here, um, wisdom is recognizable. False wisdom destroys relationships, but true wisdom destroys selfishness. All right, let's pray. (sighs) Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to learn. Um, Thank you for your brother and his willingness to write down his thoughts for the group of Christians that were headed out from Jerusalem. I pray, Lord, that we can relate to this group of people, this audience that James is talking to. Um, I pray that we can absorb the meaning that, that you would have us absorb from this. I pray that we would attempt to abide 
further in you. That as we ask, um, as, we, as we develop a relationship with you, that, that abiding would become our understanding and our experience of wisdom. I pray not only this, but that as we interact with those around us in Crosspoint, as we interact with the people that we see on Sundays or in our grow groups, um, that we would begin to see the fruits of wisdom. Um, and if we can't see the fruits of wisdom, Lord, I pray that you would give us a burden and a heart to be that, to be the example, to be um, the fruits of wisdom in our groups. Uh, that we can start to see a harvest of righteousness around us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.